It's really been a blessing in disguise, I think. At least one of the things about this pandemic and this year of crazy turmoil is that I think I have grown to appreciate more than I ever have before how much we need God constantly. Because there are constantly things happening that are just uh, really beyond what I feel like I can handle personally or like this world can handle. And then things work out. And I'm like, that's God. It's, it's got to be. And it's, it's been a blessing, I think, to me in my spiritual life to see that play out. That's not at all what I'm talking about today. But I just was thinking about that as we were singing. And it was really an encouraging thing for me. So growing up, I knew one thing about predestination, and that is that we don't believe in predestination. And as I got a little bit older, I started having conversations with people I respected, and more importantly, reading my Bible for myself and really pouring through and trying to figure out what is the Bible teaching me. And I started to realize that a total denial of the idea of predestination is really untenable. Like, there are so many passages. It's not just one or two here or there, but like over 20 passages in the New Testament that in some way or another talk about calling, election, predestination. And so that left me with a question. What is predestination? And what does the Bible say about it? And so I will begin today with our provocative title, We Are Predestined. Now, I want to preface this in the beginning with a sense in which there is a very real sense in which the Bible does not preach, teach predestination. And that is that when the world says predestination, generally what they mean is unconditional election, the you in the tulip of Calvinism. And the Bible does not teach that at all. Basically, that says that before the world began, God randomly, arbitrarily just picked some people, and then against their will, he's going to bring them to himself. And that is not at all a biblical position. But as I've said, there are lots of passages that talk about predestination, and so we can't deny it either. So we have to reject, on one hand, the box that says unconditional election, and also reject this idea that there's no such thing as predestination, or I would I will go as far as to say we should reject the idea of only a group predestination. I think that the Bible clearly teaches individual predestination. But how and what does that mean? Well, I will tell you the summary of what I think at the beginning, and I'll spend the rest of the time defending that idea. So I think that, as I said, I I agree with the Calvinist idea that we are individually predestined, but I disagree with what they say that we don't have free will about it, or that it's random or arbitrary. I think that what the Bible teaches about predestination is that God individually, uh, he, he knows through his foreknowledge who will respond properly to the gospel. And he individually works in their lives to bring about a series of events through his providence that will allow them to get access to the gospel. So let's talk about it. Let's unpack that. There are three parts to this. The first is that I want to say that God knows. And we're going to talk about here God's foreknowledge. Um, God knows who who is going to respond properly. He knows, uh, to take the example from the parable of the wheat 
and the weeds, he knows who the wheat and the weeds are before anybody else does because God knows the beginning and the end. He knows everything. And so with that, uh, let's, let's pack, unpack this. And today I've got subpoints that will form sentences, uh, which is unusual for me, but I thought it would be best. So to begin, God wants everyone to be saved. Here's our first clause. And that's pretty obvious. Uh, if you turn over to, uh, or actually I've got it up here, 2 Peter 3. We're told the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but it's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So this passage says, if God had his way, his perfect will, and man had no free will at all, then everyone would be saved because that's what God wants. And so we, we begin with that as a bedrock uh, because... Uh, if, if we're talking about unconditional election and you start to unpack the parts of that, there is not this idea that God wants everyone to be saved. And that is troubling because it's pretty clear from the Bible. So whatever decision we come to, we have to understand that God desires that everyone should be saved. But he also knows that's not going to happen. He understands that there are going to be people that he's going to extend the call to and they are going to reject him. And he knew this from the beginning. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 31. This is uh, when God is calling his people Israel. Even then, he understood that by and large, they would reject him. And to conceptualize this, think if you knew when you were dating somebody that if you married them, they would cheat on you. Like, would you still marry them? Like, that's a hard question. But God did. He knew Israel would be unfaithful, but still knowing all of that, God made a covenant with Israel. But uh, he tells them right at the beginning, uh, and these are some of the last words of Moses here recorded in Deuteronomy 31, and we'll start in verse 24. Here's what Moses says to the people. Deuteronomy 31, starting in verse 24. When Moses had finished writing the words of the law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there there for you as a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more? After my death. And we skip down to verse 29. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly, turn aside from the way I've commanded you, and in the days to come evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. So even at the very beginning of the covenant that God made with his people Israel, he knew they were going to be unfaithful by and large. But he still extended the call. He still gave them the law. He still had hope that they would respond. Um, And as we flip on over still, and this is like a thousand years later in 2 Peter, God knew that would happen when he sent Jesus. He knew, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2. He knew they would reject Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, it talks about Jesus coming to earth as a stone, or metaphorically as a stone. Uh, And to some, 
He is a cornerstone that they're going to build their life on. But to others, he is a stone of stumbling. So we'll see in 1 Peter 2, we'll start reading in verse 6. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but... For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, verse 8 is a little bit scary. They, they reject it. They disobey the word as they were destined to do. And if you come to this without our first point that God wants everyone to be saved, it really sounds like that God is making them sin, making them reject him. But we know that is not a possibility. So whatever we come away with this from, we can't decide that God is forcing them here to sin. So what does it mean? I think there are two possible options, probably both of them sort of in conjunction, for what does it mean that God, uh, that they were destined to disobey the word. I think either one that destined here is a little bit less active, uh, that God is the one that is doing the destining, but it is more that God knew all along that they would reject him. He knew from the beginning that they were weeds. He knew that they would stumble, and he knew that if he presented the gospel to them, even you know, the best way that he knew how, they would still reject him. That's one option. The other option is that destined here is active, but it's not God who did the destining. It's the people themselves. And the people uh, rejected God. And through the actions of their life, through trying to establish their own righteousness, through trying to uh, be their own God effectively, the people rejected God because of course they would. And through their choices, through their actions, they set themselves up for a path to where, of course, they would reject God. And I think either of those options fits here. But whatever whatever we see, we know God wants everyone to be saved, but he knows that's not going to happen. He knows people are going to reject him. But he's patient with both kinds of vessels. We'll turn over, I stole some terminology here, from Romans chapter 9. And uh, if you have a marker... I would encourage you to put it in Romans 9 because we're going to be turning most of the passages after this are going to be within a page or two from Romans 9. So this time we're in uh, Romans 9 verses 21 through 24. But to set this up here, Paul has spent the first part of Romans 9 setting up pretty much what we've been talking about so far, that God called Israel, but he understood that by and large, most of them were going to reject him. But He still called them. And you might ask, why? Why would God spend all that energy? Why would God go through all the effort to call, to try and encourage, to give these, like, why would God put so much effort into people he knew would still fail? And Paul tells us the answer to this. In Romans chapter 9, we'll start in verse 21. It says, Has the potter not the right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory? 
even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So if from the beginning God knew who was going to be saved and who would not, who would respond to his call and who would not, then why put up all the effort? Well, he tells us here that it's because of wrath, mercy, power, and glory. Look, I would not know what an incredible gift it is to receive forgiveness and mercy from God. If I couldn't look in the Old Testament and see the stories of people getting you know, struck down by plagues or bitten by uh, cobras because of their disobedience, because of their complaining. Look, to see sin and to see its full consequences and ramifications reminds me what an incredible gift it is that instead of God saying, no, I'm done with you and smiting me dead right on the spot like I deserve, he had patience. He sent his son to die for me. That is incredible. And if we can see that, if we can see the way that the people who would not respond properly, God's still showing them patience. And when they finally it came to a head, the full ramifications of sin, then we can understand by seeing God's wrath what an incredible gift it is to receive his mercy. And we can see by the power that he displays the sort of incredible glory that is waiting for us, the power he has to work in our lives to help us. So God endured, he's patient with both kinds of vessels because he understood that there would be some people that would respond properly. There would be certain people who would be faithful. Now, you might ask, who are these faithful? Who are uh, the elect, as it's called? Uh, and why do some people get grace and why do some people not? Well, who gets to be the elect? It's literally anybody who wants to be. Like, there's nothing stopping anybody from coming to God. But the thing is that there are just people who are not going to. And I'll explain that in a moment. But Paul explains it here in just a couple verses later in Romans chapter 9. Here's, what he differ, here's how he differentiates between the people who will receive mercy and those who will not. It, starting in verse 30 of Romans 9, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel, who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they've stumbled over a stumbling stone. As it was written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. See, we read this verse earlier in 1 Peter. And Peter said that they stumble because they were destined to do so. But Paul gives us a little bit different of a view here. He says they stumble because they were trying to establish their own righteousness. They were going at it the wrong way. That there are some people, when they try and come to God, they're going to come to him through faith, throwing themselves at him and saying, look, I don't deserve this. I can do nothing. I need you. And there are other people who are going to come to God and say, you gave me a law. I'm going to keep it so good that you're going to have to give me my ticket to heaven. And when you come to God that way, you will find him a stumbling stone. And so... The people who approach God through faith, like the one who received the promise, you see Abraham and Isaac and all these fathers of faith received 
promises because they had faith. And so when we follow in that same footsteps, when we also approach God through faith, then we get to be part of the elect, part of the believers, part of the people that God is working in our lives to help us to reach and receive the gospel. But what about the other people? Well, we'll keep reading, starting in verse 10, 1. Uh, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Here he's talking about the Jews. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here he lays it out clearly. If you are trying to establish your own righteousness, whether that's by trying to live good enough that God has to give you, Uh, uh, your entrance to heaven, or if you're trying to establish your own righteousness in the sense that like, you're just like, you see God and you say, I don't need you. I'm happy without you. Then you have rejected him. And both of those things are a rejection of God. And when you seek to find happiness, fulfillment, or entrance to God's fellowship without Jesus, then you miss the whole thing because that's what it says. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the whole thing. If you have Jesus, you have everything. If you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. And so we can see God knew beforehand who would respond and who would not. He wanted everyone to be saved, but he understood that certain people would reject it. And so he was patient with both kinds of vessels for the sake of the faithful. Now, as we conclude this point, There's one thing that I want to make abundantly clear, and that is if we can learn about God's foreknowledge and the plans that God made, which is where we're going to go here in a second, without recognizing what an incredible gift it is to follow God, without realizing how amazing the grace he receives is, then we've missed the whole thing. We've got to go back to the beginning because, you know, I I started this out, what, what is predestination? And why does it matter? Like, why do I care uh, about predestination? And part of it is that we've got to see God's grace working in our lives, working throughout the world as we serve this incredible God, and it should bring us to honor and glorify him. So God knew, but here our second point is that God plans. And if before we were talking about predestination in a limited sort of sense with God's foreknowledge. Here is really where we get to the core of predestination. Because before, his predestination in his foreknowledge is kind of like God knew before where their destination was. But here, God's plan, God is actively taking a part in human life to bring about his will. And remember... God's will is that everyone will be saved, but he understands certain people will not. So he's not forcing his will on people. But God has a plan, and he has the power to execute it. And that's where we're going to start. God, through his power and choice, his infinite power, unchangeable choice, God predestined. Let's look here. In Ephesians 1, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him 
who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That our God works all things according to the counsel of his will. When he wants something to happen, it will happen. He will make it happen. Now you might say, well, that sounds like a contradiction because all along you've been telling me we have free will, which we do, but we'll get to that in a moment. What the, the thrust of this verse, though, we have to understand is that God has power over everything. Anything that he wants to happen, he can make it happen. And because of that, we can have hope that we can be sanctified. Because it says we're, we've, we're predestined to an inheritance according to his purpose. But how do we get that inheritance? Well, we don't have it now because we're not ready for it. We need to be sanctified. Turn over uh, to Romans 8. This is Romans 8, and we'll start in verse 28. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, which is what we just said, basically. Uh, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. So God has power to make the world work according to his purposes. And so God, through his foreknowledge, knew who would respond well And then he predestined them. And this is a powerful point because a lot of times we forget that God is really active in our lives. We think of him sort of more of as a deist prime mover than as an active God. But God, in his foreknowledge, knew who would respond properly. But he doesn't just sit back there. Instead, it says that God, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And I think... You, know, you talk, call it providence, it's pr- pretty close here to what I would say is going on here. That God knew who would respond, and so he made the world work so that those people who would respond properly could get the gospel. Those who he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified and justified, glorified. Through Jesus, we have justification from our sins. Through Jesus, we have a hope of glory. God had this elaborate plan that he's been working all along, and he's been working in our lives and in the lives of people all throughout history to bring about his will. And he knew who would respond well, and when he found those people, he made things work together so that they could get what they wanted, which was God, which was the relationship, which was faith and grace and all of those things that they were seeking. And so from here, we, we think about why certain people might respond properly and uh, why others wouldn't. And I think here you have to understand the Bible is... I mean, in many ways, a unique book, but in some ways, exactly like just about every other kind of art. And that is that when you walk through an art gallery, there are some pieces that you get and some pieces that you're just like, I don't know, that, that's, a, that's a blue canvas. I, I don't understand it. And, but there are people out there who will go and they'll spend you know, millions of dollars on that blue canvas because they, they get it. It means something to them. And 
art is rather subjective in that way. But we understand this concept that some people get it and some people don't. And I think that's the truth with the Bible, that you can present the word as best you can to people and some people just aren't interested. And maybe in the course of time they will be and maybe in the course of time they won't be. But the truth is that some people just get it and some people don't. And if you understand it, if you want to follow God, if you see the value in it, then you are going to do all that you can to get there. And God, like, uh, like John the Baptist does, is going to flatten the hills, rise the valleys, straighten the path. God is going to make a way for you to receive the gospel if you want to. And if you would respond properly, God is going to use his power to help that happen. And he does this in a couple ways. One is that God had a grand plan. And I would love to just read the entirety of Romans 11, but I will settle for just two verses. Effectively, God says that he's been bearing with the Jews this whole time and uh, with this, knowing that they would reject him with the hope that he could open the call to new people, uh, to the Gentiles. And that when he opened the call to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles entering through this new open door would make the Jews jealous and that then the Jews would enter and that everyone could be saved. That is God's hope. And he's been working crazy probabilities to make that happen through his power. And that's what we see happen in Romans 11. We'll read verses 11 and 12. It says, So I ask, did they stumble, that is the Jews, in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and in their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? That God is working this crazy plan to bring about the salvation of the Gentiles and the jealousy of the Jews, that the Jews can have salvation. God is working and he has been planning this forever. Since the beginning of the world, this was his plan to bring the gospel to everyone, to open the call. And that's just the God that we serve. He's incredible. And he understands people in such an amazing way because what's wild about God's sovereignty is not that he can plan this with mindless automatons, but that God can plan this with people, with powerful spiritual forces, sometimes working against him. There are so many variables, but God giving people free will simultaneously brought about all of these factors so that this plan of salvation could be executed. And he had this grand plan going, but he also has billions of tiny individual plans. You think about Philip. Not our Philip, but Philip in the Bible, who was walking down the road, just happened to be walking down the road at the same time that the Ethiopian eunuch happened to be driving down the road, happened to be reading the Isaiah scroll, happened to have the boldness to say, yeah, I don't know what I'm reading. It happened that they were able to talk. That seems like a lot of happened to happen. Ah, That's God's providence. That's God's predestination happening, working out his plan so that the Ethiopian unit could receive the gospel. And you think about 
how the Philippian jailer just happened to be working that night where there was an earthquake, where Paul and Barnabas were able, or Paul and Silas were able to teach him the gospel. And I think about in my own life, the crazy series of probabilities that led me to this moment, led me to meeting my wife, led me to doing a lot of things that were really beneficial to me as a Christian. And so it's wild that our God found a way to get the gospel to those who knew would believe, found a way to bring us together so that we could grow more into the image of Jesus, which we were predestined to. It, God is working out his plan so that the people who will respond well can get what they need to follow him. And that is amazing. But guess what? God still called everyone. And that is something that is truly astonishing to me. I mean, in Romans 10, in the last verse there, he says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I've held my hand out to a disobedient and contrary people. God, God just kept on holding out his hand to Israel, knowing that they would not respond. And knowing that they would stumble, knowing that some people would never respond. God knew all along the wheat from the weeds. But here's the thing. We don't know who the wheat and who the weeds are. And rather than that causing suspicion and you look left and right, ah, are you a wheat? No, like be out in the world anticipating opportunities for wheat. Because here's the thing, God calls people from the craziest places and in the craziest ways. And I mean, we all know stories of people. Like there was a guy who walked into our church in Chattanooga, an atheist, and like several months later was converted because it just happened to happen that way. And God is working these crazy things so that these people who we have interactions with, these people who we might have interactions with, we can be a part of God's plan of providence to bring the gospel to them. And true, sometimes that's not going to work. A lot of times it's not going to work out. But sometimes it will. And the fact that we can't know who it will be and who it won't be, and the fact that God calls everyone, even knowing they won't respond, should encourage us to be evangelistic in the same sort of way. I'll close off this second point with the last words of Romans 11. We'll read starting in verse 33. Paul says, Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. If we leave our study of predestination, I, earlier I talked about grace, and now I'm going to talk about God's wisdom. If we leave without realizing the wisdom of God, the power of God to work out all of these things so that the gospel could be brought to the people that would receive it, then we have, we've, we're missing it because God is amazing. And the things that he can do are unbelievable. Who has known the mind of God? Certainly none of us can comprehend the incredible things God is doing, but he is, and he has been doing them, and he's been planning them since forever. That's astonishing. And so we've talked about first that God knows. 
with his foreknowledge and God plans. He makes things work according to his will. But I said that we'd come back to free will and that's what I want to finish on. God still respects free will. You know, we, we said at the beginning, it, it's God's intention that we would all be saved. That's what God wants. But not everyone is saved. And you might ask, well, why is that? Is it because God is lacking in power? No, we talked about in Ephesians 1 that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, is it because of some other supernatural power? No, that John 10 tells us, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, it's not Satan's power that overpowers God's power over certain people. It is truthfully and simply that God gives people free will. God has unlimited power, but he's not going to force it on anybody. In Romans 11, there's this image of an olive tree. And he's talking to the Gentiles here about how the Jews, uh, certain Jews who were unfaithful were grafted out of the tree and how the Gentiles were grafted into the tree. And this tree, of course, represents the visible church that we can see. Um, And he says, just because you're here now doesn't mean you're always going to be here. And just because you're not here right now, Jews, doesn't mean you can't get back into the tree. We'll read uh, Romans 11. Uh, verses 33 through 36. No, not that one. <laughs> Romans eleven seventeen through 24. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in according among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches if you are. Remember, it's not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Well, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not be proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. And even they if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So we see this tree, and it constantly seems to have people grafted in and grafted out. And he talks about why that is. Pride grafts people out. Faith grafts people in. And there's this seeming sense of constant change. God knew all along who the final olive tree would be, but we don't. We see them coming in and out. And the reason we see that is because man has free will. Man wills himself to come to God and God grafts them in and man wills himself to leave and God grafts them back out. But all of this, uh, though God, through his infinite power, can do whatever he wants and can protect the sheep and the sheep hear his voice, he leaves one kernel of this world uncontrolled and that is us, man, free will. And we can do whatever we want. And God is not going to stop us from leaving him. And so, although we do nothing uh, to deserve our salvation, there is a very real sense in which there is something that we are doing. Not that we are earning anything, but a part of this that we are responsible for. And that is what Peter will urge us in 2 Peter 1. He says, 
it all comes down to this. You've got to choose. Yes, God has a plan. He has destined us for salvation. That is his will for us. But unfortunately, there are people who will reject it. There are people who will turn on God's will for them. And that is sad. But it is also the case that we have to pick. We have to commit to following God. And that's what he's going to say in 2 Peter. Here it's given the list of Christian virtues, godliness, self-control, brotherly affection. But in verse 9, it says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That we can, uh, if we stop committing to God, stop committing to growth, we can forget about our, our cleansing. So that's why he urges in verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. God calls us all. He hopes we will all respond. He has the power to make us all respond, but he does not choose to go that far. He instead uses his power to help us to find him when we need to, and he chooses to restrain from using his power when we would do things that are opposed to his will, because God is constantly giving us free will. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this information now that we know that God knows, we know that God plans, and we know that God respects our free will. Well, I'll conclude with, with four points. Since we have received so much, we have this grace that is overflowing to us. God has blessed us. God has transformed the world to make it work for us who would desire to follow him. Since we know that God has done so much for us, how can we do anything but explode with thankfulness to our God who is so kind and so good to us. Second, since we serve such an awesome God, how can we do anything but marvel at his power, his majesty, his wisdom in working this world out according to the purpose of his plan and making these things happen without taking away our free will? It's astonishing, but this is the kind of God that we serve. And since he has loved us so deeply, we understand that a God, he loved his people so much that he called them even knowing they would reject them, uh, married them knowing they would cheat on him. This is the kind of God that we serve. And if he has this sort of selfless, deep love, then we've got to learn that love too. We've got to reflect it to others. And we need to be, again, thankful and loving in return to a God who loves us so deeply. And finally, since we don't deserve it. I mean, this is the, the crux of this. We, we don't deserve this. It is all grace. And while we may respond in faith, we're told that this election is according to God's grace, not according to man who works, not according to us to justify ourselves, not according to us to make ourselves worthy of God's salvation. It is a gift. And as we receive it, we must do it with humility and thankfulness, living our lives with gladness and joy to be serving the God we serve. And so God knew all along. He planned for all of us individually and also very broadly in this massive plan. 
but he leaves it up to us to choose. And so the question comes to you, what will you 